Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science in your ear holes. My name is Chris, and today I'm talking about a controversial paper that was published recently that looked at uh, looked at the hiring of women in science, uh, whether there was uh, sexist hiring or not. Um, this paper declared that, no, there was not sexism. In fact, women were preferred. And, of course, people have kind of picked this to pieces because it kind of doesn't gel with the reality that, that most people observe. So I'm going to be looking at that, seeing what it means and whether it actually... Um, we should just be worrying about. It's not the issue that we should be worrying about here. I think there are, you know, other bigger, you know, other issues affecting the whole situation than the one that they're examining. But anyway, more of that in a bit. Um, Beth, what have you got for us? Um, well, I'm going to look at how um, NASA has been recently crowdsourcing to name features on planets in our solar system as um, they get closer and closer to them with yeah. their space probes. Yeah, great, Stu. What have you got for us? Well, I've been bombarded lately with uh, news of the centenary of a certain wartime event, but I thought I would look at the centenary of a different wartime event, the use of poison gas in World War I and... And uh, how did that all come about? So uh, I'll you look always into have the cheery stories, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, upbeat, upbeat. That, yeah. You're that kind of guy. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, on with the show. Okay. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and as I said before, I'm looking at some controversy about a recent paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, by two scientists, Wendy Williams and Stephen Chechi. And this article was looking at um, whether sexism prevents women being hired. It basically claimed that it was a myth that uh, there was sexist hiring, that it was um, biased against women. And in fact, they found in their study that women were favoured. So this is for like postdoc positions in the science field this or was, well, professorships. Is, What's what is this? Yeah, this was tenure track positions. Mm. Yeah, and they found a favour. I said the favour. The ratio was two to one. They reckon was that women were favoured. Um, yeah, so it was actually a particular kind of thing. But I'll get into the details of that in a bit. Now, the thing that this has caused controversy, obviously, because this is a this is an area that a lot of people are very concerned about, and um, yeah, there's a lot of discussion around it, and um, it does also clearly conflict with the reality that most people perceive, which is that there is a great disparity in in gender in science and science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I think, or STEM, as it's called. Um, so, yeah, the paper has been pulled apart as a result, and, yeah, a number of problems have been found with it. But look, before I get into that, um, I just want to point out something that, because in, in reading up on this this topic and all the commentary on it and this sort of thing, um, I've been struck by how rarely people actually point to sexism in hiring as as the main problem 
in um, the, in causing this this gender imbalance. Um, in fact, it's, it's it's very rarely mentioned, I guess, as as the major issue. Um, most of the people who write about the problem they talk about things that are like um, the workplace culture that uh, that doesn't allow for things like work life balance. They talk about uh, entrenched sexism and harassment and that kind of thing to make the workplaces unwelcoming. They talk about the um, the not insignificant gender pay gap and also the stereotypes that discourage women from entering these fields in the first place. So you know these are all kind of significant issues that come up more often than this one of hiring practices. So I think, you know, one response to this study would be to say, well, that's very good, but so what? Really? Um, okay, so I've got that out of the way, but now let's look at the actual study, because um, there is a lot to criticise. Now, um, one of the big things I suppose that makes it stand out is because there have been, over the years, a number of other studies that have found the opposite conclusion. In fact, there's a widely cited study that was also published in the same journal in 2012 that looked at attitudes to um, male, hypothetical male and female applicants for a laboratory manager position. So these are people who kind of were PhD quality. They were, they were graduate students who were then applying for a laboratory manager comp- position. And they found there that there was, um, that the men, there was much bi- more bias towards the men. And so you have to wonder why this paper then got such a different result. Um, well, I suppose you can look at the way they've done it. As, as you pointed out, Beth, it was uh, looking at a very particular stage in the career. Um, but the way they actually did it was they they invited a whole bunch of people to take part in the study and they sent them out, the people who agreed to take part, they sent them out um, stories of particular job applicants, uh, kind of their life story and their background, this sort of thing, uh, with, you know, they'd swap male and female pronouns and this sort of thing between them and try and ask people to choose which one they would hire. And they found that, yeah, actually there was this two-to-one favouring of the women. Now, I guess one of the one of the things there is that, apart from this being an unrealistic scenario, this is not how people actually hire in science, it is also pretty obvious pretty quickly what kind of study they're doing. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I suppose, you know, this is a topic that's discussed. These, I don't know whether their names were on the, the letters they were sending out, but these authors have written about this topic before. I imagine it's pretty obvious what they were studying. They're not looking at people actually hiring for a position. They're just looking at theoretically hiring for a position. Is yeah, right? they are. Yeah, that's well, right. And, okay. and not, not only that, wouldn't it just be easier to look at the number of people hired in these positions than ask people who they would hire? Well, no, that's an interesting thing. Um, they have... They have actually looked at that. They they so they've looked at um, statistics over the years, and they claim that the those kind of statistics do back up their conclusions. That they're they're saying when you get to these um, these kind of positions and the interviewing for them, that women are more likely to reach the interview stage than men are in these um, with some of these positions. Okay. Um, so this is what they're they're claiming is the actual real world statistics back up their findings as well. But I still think that people answering these questions kind of would want to do the right thing. Yeah, look, it's a self-selected study. It's yep. people who probably know what's going on. I th- and I think, you know, there is, in fact, there is kind of now a lot of um, talk about these these issues that people would know that they, they can't discriminate and the fact yep. that they're perhaps going to um, weigh things the other way. So, yeah, look, that is that does sound, I guess, a little bit dodgy and whether it would go somewhere to explaining why their results were different to to other people. I suppose another thing that, that also, though, when you look at this, and particularly when you look at research they've done before, is they come with this with a particular kind of attitude and a particular result that they're going for. And for them, it's, it's, they talk about, they use language like, uh, it's not that women are being not hired, it's that they're choosing not to go on in their career. So they're putting it down to the, the choice of women. Um, because I think they come from that sort of attitude of, you know, economics thing of your choice of what, things you do. 
but um, women could be so over the workplace discrimination well, or by that stage. well uh, yeah that that's i mean and that is that is a legitimate thing as well, mm-hmm. yeah, and so they talk about things like women choosing say to go and start a family mm. um ignoring the the kind of the idea that well they shouldn't have to choose between the career mm. and starting a family mm. you know that's kind of where the problem is that there is had to be a choice, but they're sort of saying, oh well even this is what women are choosing mm. to do this um yeah so it's there is, I guess it's complicated in that way, the kind of conclusions I've drawn and the kind of things they're, they're going for as well in that sense. Um, yeah, it, they've also drawn a lot of um, criticism because they said that when people talk about there being, uh, that there possibly is sexism in the way that there is, that the hiring takes place and that then discourages uh, people for applying for jobs and that we shouldn't talk about sexism because that'll just turn people off, um, which is not terribly a helpful way to look at it. It's like if you don't talk about the problem, it won't go away. Yeah, that's right. That's don't right. don't, don't talk about issues with a particular job because it'll turn people off that job, even, even though it actually exists. Yeah, that's yeah. A I problem. Think, I think it's better to call out the problem, really, and yeah. to yeah. try and address the address problem rather it. than, yeah, try not to you know, start science discussion. Anyway, so look, I think where there's one conclusion they do say in their paper, which is that which is basically that we shouldn't, women should be encouraged to continue in science. I think that's something we can all agree with. Yes. And that is a message that we, we do want to get out there. Um, yes, but bear in mind the realities that there is a huge imbalance and we need to do more um, to, to help to improve the situation. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. You might have noticed some talk lately about the centenary of the First World War. It seems to be sort of, you know, all over the shop at the moment for whatever reason that might be. And look, however you want to respond to that uh, commemoration or information, that war, the First World War from 1914 to 1918, is regarded by most sort of historians as the first truly modern war. So it's sort of the start of modern warfare. So a lot of the weaponry used in the conflict was new. They had repeating rifles mm-hmm. and they had machine guns. They had aircraft for the first time yeah. involved in war. They invented tanks mm-hmm. for that war. They also had radio, which was a completely huge leap as far as tactics were concerned and communications, you know, between the soldiers and the military forces on either side. But possibly one of the less obvious advances that made the First World War stand out was actually chemistry which is why we're talking about it on Lost in Science. So I think I've spoken before on the show about how development of nitrogen synthesis made a huge difference um, that guaranteed supplies of nitrogen for Germany, uh, which is a major ingredient in making explosives. That was the, um, the Haber process? Was yeah, it? the Haber-Bosch process, right. which, which allowed them to fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Um, So that was very important for Germany, but chemistry also allowed a different kind of warfare which appeared uh, in World War I, which had actually been banned 15 years before the beginning of the war. Oh, really? That being chemical warfare. So in 1899, there was a convention at The Hague which outlawed the use of um, asphyxiating gases Mm -hmm. uh, in warfare, and that was roundly ignored once the war started, and they um, jumped in with both feet, basically. So Germany was the first country to deliberately use illegal chemical weapons. 
they were using tear gas before that, and people still use tear gas. Police forces and people still use tear gas, which mm-hmm. is not an asphyxiating gas. It's just a really painful... It's an irritant. It's, it's not designed to kill you, basically. Yeah, it's designed to uh, to irritate you and make you subdued so you can be arrested or whatever. Um, but they started using... The Germans started using chlorine gas in early 1915. Now, chlorine gas is really quite toxic, Um so it will damage your eyes and your nose and your mouth and your airways and your throat when you breathe it in, really not great. And if it's in high enough concentration, you suffocate because it excludes all of the air. So you've got nothing left to breathe. Right. Now, it's it's greenish, is it? It is, and it smells. It smells like chlorine. Okay. Yeah. So you, can, you, can, you know when it's coming because you can actually smell it on the air. Um, so, yeah, it's painful and it can kill you and... Uh, and they deployed it in 1915. They launched it in canisters, and the canisters exploded and sort of affected everyone. So is this um, why everyone wore masks? The masks, masks came in quite quickly because yeah. they actually realised that chlorine gas dissipates quite quickly as well. Oh, okay. So if you can withstand the initial uh, bombardment and cover yourself up so you don't get burnt, then you'd probably be okay. Um, so once the Germans did that, the British commanders were outraged the use of this gas, and they, you know, they knew it was illegal, it was totally inappropriate, so they went out and developed their own chlorine gas arsenal so that they could compete, because, you know, it's only fair if they're chlorine gassing you that you chlorine gas them back. Um, so, as I said, the chlorine gas dissipated quite quickly, and it wasn't as effective as they hoped it would be in disrupting their uh, their enemies. Um, So they moved on to more deliberately toxic gases. So chlorine gas came to them as a byproduct of a number of industrial processes. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those industrial chemists are still in operation, like BASF and Bayer and companies like that. All right. Um, But they they had all this chlorine lying around, didn't know what to do with it, so they sold it to the army, basically. Um, So uh, they developed some more toxic gases that were more effective than chlorine. So they had uh, a gas called phosgene, which was far more toxic than chlorine. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the benefits of phosgene was that you couldn't smell it. So you'd be breathing it in for a long time before you realised that you were breathing in poisonous gas. And it didn't necessarily affect you immediately. So you could be gassed and then the next day you'd sort of fall over in a heap and not be any good to anyone. Wow, that's nasty. So it was nasty, insidious stuff. Um, apparently it smells a bit like mouldy hay. So if you're in a field with, you know, and, and they did have horses and all that sort of stuff around and they were fighting in the countryside, it probably wouldn't be that obvious. Mm. Um, uh, and so that meant also people didn't run away either. So they couldn't smell it, so they didn't run away from the gas, which meant they just sort of stuck around in it, which affected them worse. So phosgene is responsible for about 85,000 deaths in the First World War, um, but is probably not all that well known. Most people probably aren't aware that that yeah, was why, why a big is that killer. Well... Because the effects were not outwardly obvious. So okay. people could be affected. And, you know, you'll, you'll often sort of people depict people sitting in a you know, hospital coughing or whatever, and they, oh, he's been gassed. And it's like, well, that's, you know, okay. just sounds like he's got a cough. But, uh, you know, it did it did actually kill people. Um, but probably the gas people mostly do know is called mustard gas. Mm. So mustard gas is called, also known as sulfur mustard. 
Uh, it's a chemical compound that causes blistering directly on contact with your skin. So if you get gassed with it, you just come out and blisters all over, which also happens in your throat and in your eyes and whatever else it comes in contact with um, and irritates the airways. That wasn't actually introduced until quite a bit later in the war in 1917, and the Germans used it first, um, and then the British captured some unused shells and decided to develop their own, even after having seen its effects on their troops. And, and English mustard is quite... Quite vicious. It's not. It's it's actually more like uh, airborne sulfuric acid. Right, so does it have a relation to mustard at all? Like, where does the name it, come from? It, it's from the smell, I think. Okay. Yeah, because it's it doesn't. It's not actually made of mustard. It's made of sulfur and acid, sort okay. of joined together and then put into a gaseous form um, with two chlorine molecules on the end. So it's related to the, you know, the effect of chlorine is probably what makes the uh, the gas so toxic. I guess. Um, now, the British captured some unused shells and started to manufacture their own supplies, but they didn't have... There was a specific process the Germans had to make it really quickly and easily, the mm-hmm. mustard gas. Um, the British didn't have that that uh, chemical method, so um, the Germans were kind of winning on that front. Any, anyway, didn't actually really win the war. It was really just for, you know, disrupting the other side, Um and uh, so after the end of the First World War in 1918, people did keep using poison gases um, in various conflicts around the world. There was a lot of um, colonial war at that time as mm-hmm. the as the you know Europeans sort of withdrew out of various parts of the world. So they were using a lot of poison gas because they were cheap and effective, especially against poorly armed combatants on the other side. Right. Uh, and the Japanese used a lot in the Sino-Japanese War just after the First World War. Oh, okay. Um, but then everyone decided, hey, that's not really great. Let's all get together and we'll sign this document, which is the Geneva Protocol, which was signed in 1925, which banned the use of chemical warfare. Didn't actually stop anyone stockpiling this stuff, and they did stockpile it. All of the people who were involved in the First World War kept stockpiling this stuff up until the Second World War, just in case someone else used it. And it, it seems to me to be a bit of a, you know... Yeah. It's like, well, we've got to have it just... It's, it's an arms race, effectively, yeah. um, before, you know, it's a pre-nuclear arms race mm. of uh, chemical warfare. Um, so very little use of poison gas occurred after 1925. Um, the times when it did was claimed that it was accidental and there was a couple of... Uh, you know, incidents of, you know, mustard gas spills in storage and stuff, which killed, you know, hundreds of people mm. um, at various times. But they were all accidental. No one actually used it on purpose, supposedly, after 1925, which is, you know, quite nice. They developed deadly weapons of other kinds before they went into other warfare. But uh, that's why, um, you know, it's interesting to read some histories of World War One, especially the early ones called it the, the Chemist's War because of the importance of chemistry for the first time. So I have Dr. Alice Gorman here on the phone on Lost in Science. Um, Alice, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, Alice is doing some very interesting things in terms of space and archaeology. Um, would you define yourself as a space archaeologist, Alice? Could you tell me a little bit about that? 
I do call myself a space archaeologist. Most archaeologists have some kind of special area that they focus on. So some do Aboriginal archaeology, some do historical, some do underwater. I focus on space, and by that we mean outer space. So I'm basically looking at things like satellites and space junk and places on the surface of the moon and other planets where we've landed spacecraft. I'm looking at them as if they're artefacts and archaeological sites and doing the same kind of thing that I would do if they were, you know, a thousand years in the past. I'm, I'm looking at them with the archaeologist's eye. So there's quite a lot of space junk in space, isn't there, from Earth? And I guess that's going to stick around for, for many years to come. There is. There's, there's about 6,000 tonnes of stuff in low Earth orbit. And a lot of it will get dragged back into the atmosphere, but there's a huge amount of stuff that's in higher orbits that will be around for a long, long time. And yeah, it's it's a problem that we're going to have to do something about in the next few years, really. And you've also been involved in uh, campaigns in naming certain features in our in our solar system, um, and in particular, you're invested in p- features on Pluto. Can you tell me about that as well? Well, Pluto it's it's quite a controversial planet, as you know, mm. because it got demoted from full planet status some a uh, couple of years ago. And it was not discovered until 1930, so we, we didn't actually know it was part of our solar system for sure until earlier in this century. So that, that makes it really interesting. It's also the furthest planet away from the sun. It's about 5 billion kilometres away. And no spacecraft has ever visited it close enough to actually see what the surface is like. And as we speak, there is a NASA spacecraft, New Horizons, which is closing in on Pluto. And in July, it's it's going to be close enough to send us detailed images of the surface, which is so exciting. We have never seen this place before. But it brings with it an interesting problem. Basically, it's going to be, you know, a... a huge surface covered with features of different kinds, which, you know, we don't know exactly what yet. And in order for scientists to communicate about them, they're going to have to have names. And what happened in the process of thinking about that was the International Astronomical Union, who kind of oversees the process of giving things in the solar system names, collaborated with NASA and also with the SETI Institute. SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which is not to say that people are expecting to find it on Pluto, just that they have um, been collaborating as well on the project. So they threw it open to the public. They said, people, tell us what you'd like to see places on Pluto called. So you're kind of crowdsourcing names. Crowdsourcing names in the solar system. Uh, which I think is is fantastic. And what they did, they put together a long list of possible names that could be used. And Pluto has a theme. All of the planets have a theme. And Pluto's is exploration and also the underworld because Pluto is the Roman god of the underworld and death and all of those things. So they put together a long list of possible names that you can choose from to vote but you're also allowed to nominate new names that are on that list as well. So, yeah, it's crowdsourcing names for the new places on Pluto that we would never knew existed before this point. So it's a wonderful way to 
get people involved in space exploration and also to kind of break the hold that the sort of really old-fashioned classical names have in the solar system. So it's kind of opening it up. It's making the solar system more democratic and egalitarian, uh, to my way of thinking. And has there been some interesting suggestions? We, you mentioned off-air that there was, there's an Aboriginal name that has been thrown up for a certain feature. Um, can you tell me about that? Yes. So if you go to our Pluto, which is the site set up to vote from, and look through the list, you will find an Aboriginal word in there. And this is a Yolngu place. It's called Baralku. And first of all, if you vote, and I don't want to encourage or influence anyone in their voting, but if you are going to go in and vote for Baralku, you would first of all be getting a, an, an Aboriginal place onto Pluto, which is exciting enough in itself. But Baralku is an interesting word. It's, it's the name of an, the island of the dead in Yolngu culture, which is, is northern Australia, off, uh, in Arnhem Land, around Milangimbi, Elko Island, places like that, the Gove Peninsula. So Baralku is where the spirits of the dead go, but it's also very strongly interconnected into the Barnambir or Morning Star ceremonies and a number of complex, what we'd call, what Australians are used to call dreaming stories, but that, that's not quite the right way to call them, but I'll say that for now as just a, a shorthand way of indicating it. So it's connected into a whole lot of knowledge and stories around the creation of the earth and around the morning star and the heavens and astronomy. So so this is one of the places you can vote for in the Pluto ballot. But it's even more interesting than that because people may be aware of the two Voyager spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. They were launched in 1977 and Voyager 1, which is on the slightly shorter trajectory, is sort of outside the solar system, mostly outside the solar system. It's a bit hard to tell sometimes. So it's the furthest away human objects that exists. And on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, there were records of music from the Earth, the famous golden records. They were actually copper, but they're golden colours. And there were two Aboriginal songs on these golden records that come from Melangimbi Island, and one of them is about the morning star ceremonies, which uh, are associated with Baralku, the island of the dead. The morning star rises in that part of the sky and is sometimes said to live on Baralku, the island of the dead. So there's this wonderful connection with the Yolnu culture that's present on the Voyager Golden Records. And I think it would be fantastic to, to keep that connection going by... by having, if, if the Voyager spacecraft almost represent the morning star going out to the edges of the solar system, then calling a place on Pluto after the island of the dead is, is like moving a piece of that cultural knowledge to connect with Voyager out at the very, very edges of the solar system. That sounds fascinating. Uh, you've inspired me to go on to our Pluto and, and make a vote, Alice. Well, I have to tell you, the other thing you could vote for is Monkey. Did you watch Monkey or have you ever seen the yeah, television series I, I, of Monkey? I watched it a lot. I know it well. 
so monkey the the monkey god the stone monkey that was the central character of that wonderful wonderful japanese children's television series is another place name you could vote for on pluto just to inspire you even further Great, thank you. And so how do you do that? Go to Our Pluto. How long is it open for these voting? It closes on April the 24th, so that's this Friday coming. If you go to Google and just enter Our Pluto, it'll take you straight to the site where you can vote. And there's instructions. They explain it all very well. And there's even a special kids' voting section. Great. So you you can let your children vote as well. And that was Dr. Alice Gorman talking about space archaeology and your chance to name features on Pluto. So get onto that. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris, Beth and Stuart get lost in science! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.